0: It's going down, and you're invited, for what they selling, we ain't buying There is no running, there is no hiding, there is only fighting, or dying It's going down, and you're invited, for what they selling, we ain't buying There is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting, or dying
1: It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, check out our online store for ways to donate, and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Zoe Baker, pronouns she, her. I'm a libertarian socialist philosopher and historian of anarchism. I recently released Means and Ends, The Revolutionary Practice of Anarchism in Europe and the United States, which is an overview of the ideas that anarchists developed in order to change the world. Uh, So I cover things like what anarchists thought about direct action, revolution, organization, state socialism, reforms, and trade unions. I also um, make YouTube videos where I try to kind of make academic research accessible to as many people as possible. Uh, I also post on Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, that's me. Thank you so much for
1: coming back on the show. We'll, of course, link the episode we did about two years ago. But we're so excited to talk about the book and really encourage people to pick it up and read it. We had a chance to go through it and it's it's great. It's a really nice concise history and goes over things in really easy to understand language. But what made you want to write the book? So
2: there are a lot of really really good books about the history of anarchist social movements. So like average's work or Kenyon Simmons's work. Um but they tend not to go into a huge amount of detail about anarchist theory. And there are books that explain anarchist ideas, but that they tend to focus on one person. So there'll be a book about what Kropotkin thought or what Bakunin or Reclus thought, but not the movement as a whole. Um, so I decided that I will try to bring these two kinds of books uh, together and write a book about the ideas of the anarchist movement as a whole that that draws upon both the big names and the lesser known ones and explains what anarchists thought, what their arguments were, and also tries to contextualize that as much as possible within the history of their actual attempts to put these ideas into practice. Um, And so I decided to focus on anarchist ideas about revolutionary strategy um, because they're the ideas that are most relevant today and can serve as an inspiration for people who want to change the world, but aren't sure how to, uh, which isn't to say that, you know, we should just repeat what dead anarchists uh, thought, because obviously, you know, not everything they thought was true or just because it worked in the 19th century doesn't mean it's going to work in the 21st century because conditions have changed. Um, But I think the ideas are still useful and relevant and can help people hopefully uh, generate their own views uh, about how to act effectively as a social movement.
1: So the last time we talked during the last podcast, we talked about the formation of the First International, which that history plays out in this book, of course, and how anarchism became this worldwide working class movement spreading across the world. And we talked about different places outside of America and Europe, although this book just focuses on those two specific places. Take us from that discussion to kind of the thrust of your book, if we can kind of like tie that thread together.
2: As this kind of working class social movement emerges in in the international, um, you know, that they develop their own ideas about how to change the world. And this is very much a collective process. So, you know, sometimes people say things like, oh, Bakunin is the father of anarchism. Um, And if you actually read a lot about the history of the first international, it becomes apparent that, Um, There's loads of people collectively developing ideas with each other. They're having conversations. They're attending the same meetings. uh, They're exchanging letters uh, and they're also coming up with ideas independently of one another. So, for example, um, Bakunin decides that achieving social change via parliamentary politics isn't an effective strategy. He then meets um, some socialists in Switzerland who have independently through their own experiences of trying to do electoral politics uh, come to the exact same conclusions. And these anarchists in Switzerland then become what's called the Jura Federation, which is one of the main uh, groups that create anarchism as a social movement. Uh, and so the
1: real quick to interject is, is that the mm-hmm. same group of people that's now featured in this film about
2: Kropotkin and the watchmaker? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So Kropotkin visits um, Switzerland Um, after the Paris Commune happens, because that's kind of what really was the kind of final final nail in the coffin of him becoming a socialist. Uh, And when he's in Switzerland, he meets both the state socialists, who are um, particularly in in Geneva, and then the anarchists who are in the the Jura region. And he basically isn't at all a fan of the state socialists because they try to uh, undercut a strike for construction workers in order to support a a bourgeois electoral candidate uh, and in response to this he kind of goes to meet the anarchists and much prefers them and hangs out with these watchmakers and listens to their ideas and reads all their papers. Uh, he doesn't actually meet Bakunin um, uh, for reasons that I can't fully remember. I think Bakunin was worried that Kropotkin might have been like a police spy <laughs> um, uh, and so this is why Bakunin and Kropotkin like they never actually meet um, even though they they could have um, and uh kropotkin then goes back to uh russia taking with him loads of like socialist and anarchist literature He smuggles uh, back back into the country um so my my book is concerned with well what um what was the theory that these uh anarchists collectively constructed as a social movement um and you know Kropotkin, Malatesta, like the big names who came from privileged backgrounds, will consistently say, you know, the, this theory doesn't come from universities. It was invented by workers, and you can't um, trace any of these ideas back to one specific person because they're the product of, you know, conversations between people, uh, and and so that they're inherently like collectively constructed. Uh, and my book's about well, what, what were those ideas? So the central argument of the book to try to kind of reduce it down to like a thesis statement, is that the reasons anarchists gave for supporting or opposing particular strategies were grounded in a theoretical framework, which was how they thought about society, human beings uh, and social change. And this is what I call the theory of practice. And this theory maintained that as people engage in activity, they simultaneously change the world and themselves um so you know to give an obvious example when you play the piano you don't just produce a song you also change as a person through engaging in that activity like you get better at playing the piano you develop the motivation to play new kinds of music you decide you're going to start practicing regularly uh, or you know you could decide actually i don't like the piano and then you like give up on the instrument but the point is that through engaging in the action you also change yourself, also changing the world uh, in, in various ways, and they use this kind of seemingly simple premise uh, to ground all their arguments about anarchist strategy. So, whenever they're arguing for specific strategies, like engaging in direct action, they always frame it in terms of, well, how does engaging in direct action change workers? Uh, so, for example, they develop uh, what they call the spirit of initiative, which is where you know you act for yourself rather than expecting someone else to uh, emancipate you, Uh, you you just of your own volition, like I'm going to take action Uh, and that. Change of consciousness and attitude is brought about by uh, engaging direct action or witnessing other people doing it. Um, And conversely, you know, why were anarchists against electoral politics and strategy? Well, they focused on the kinds of activity that was constituted by and how these would transform people and social movements independently of their intentions. So, for example, you know, you engage in the activity of listening to a politician make speeches uh, and this results in people over time putting their hope in the next election uh, to you know, make the world a better place rather than organising themselves uh, and taking direct action to, to achieve um, their goals. Now, this framework, the theory of practice, was the foundation for the anarchist commitment to the unity of means and ends, which is the idea that the means that revolutionaries propose to achieve social change have to involve forms of activity, which transform people into individuals who are capable of and driven to both overthrow capitalism in the state and build a free society. So, in other words, anarchist ends can only be achieved uh, by anarchist means, uh, which is where the title of the book comes from, Means and Ends, uh, and also the revolutionary practice part. Um, so I can kind of quickly try and illustrate this with an imaginary example, which is, say, a, a rent strike. So when these um, tenants, they, they form their union, they go on rent strike against that landlord. And during the course of that struggle, they make collective decisions uh, within a general assembly. Now, in so doing, they're going to change social relations, say the strike is successful, rent decreases. Uh, they've now gained more power over that landlord than they had before. And they've also changed themselves in various ways. So they've learned how to effectively organize a rent strike and learn various lessons from that you know, different uh, trial and errors. Uh, they've also learned how to make decisions in a general assembly and they've inqu- acquired an increased sense of solidarity of one another. So whereas before, say, people in the apartment didn't really know each other through the process of the rent strike, they, they now all know each other and are willing to like stand up for one another. Uh, when they're uh, facing issues in their lives due to various uh, systems of oppression. And then they also can acquire whole new ways of thinking about the world. Like they can come to think, well, maybe housing should be free. And if housing should be free, then, well, maybe capitalism uh, should be abolished. Now, during this round strike, they can also construct whole new social structures that didn't exist before, say a tenant union and long term participation in that tenant union can cause further changes to uh, both themselves as workers, but also, you know, other workers that become involved uh, in it. Uh, and so this can continue the process of workers transforming the world and themselves simultaneously through engaging in class struggle. And that then makes new actions possible that weren't possible uh, before, such as say, you know, initially you were just organizing a rent strike in an apart- one apartment, and now you're organizing uh, rent strikes across multiple uh, apartment blocks at once. And I think thought that these kinds of actions at different sites of struggle can multiply over time. And that will result in increasingly large number of workers uh, transforming themselves in the world simultaneously. And ultimately, there's going to be a shift from only modifying the dominant structures of class society to actually abolishing them and replacing them with forms of worker self-organization that have been developed during the course of the class struggle. Um, And so the idea is, is that, well, through the struggle against capitalism, the state, Workers can develop into the kinds of people who are ready to emancipate themselves and achieve anarchist goals. And crucially, if you choose the wrong kinds of means, that outcome isn't going to happen. And you could say instead, you know, end up collapsing into like a purely reformist rather than revolutionary movement or say, you know, state socialism, where rather than achieving the uh, self rule of workers, they achieve the rule of the party leadership uh, over uh, workers. Um. And the way this language kind of plays out in the anarchist primary sources is that they keep making reference to uh, people's needs changing, which is their psychological drives uh, or their powers developing, which means a capacity. Uh, So Rudolf Röcker, to give one example, uh, he says that strikes are a continuous schooling for their powers of resistance. uh, And he also refers to them as a kind of university of experience. Um, And so it's once you start noticing how anarchist authors frame their valuation of tactics in terms of this theory of practice, you kind of can't stop noticing it. And the number of examples just so huge where they keep talking about the development of powers, the changing of needs. And and that's a kind of side to anarchist theory that I think is really interesting and important to emphasise that someone who might just kind of casually read it might not immediately uh, notice and so I kind of tried in my book to really make that front and center uh, of how to interpret the theory. You
1: know what made anarchism take root in so many of these areas? You know, literally among working class and, and poor proletarians. I mean, it's one thing that there are these people that are excited about these ideas, like Bakunin, who we could you know talk about you know for a long time, obviously and led this fascinating life, but what actually made it cement itself within people's day-to-day lives, just average, everyday people?
2: There are a huge number of factors here, and you could write, you know, several books listing them all, Um, but I think a few of the main ones are as follows. So anarchists were effective at spreading their ideas through uh, print media, so pamphlets, uh, newspapers, giving lectures, uh, speaking tours, as well as, uh, you know, not just spreading the ideas through the word or through print, but also uh, organizing uh, in workplaces, uh, doing rent strikes. They mobilized homeless people. Um, they participated in struggles for uh, abortion rights. They would write critiques of you know colonialism and imperialism. Um, and so through that kind of participation, everyday struggles over, the immediate concerns of workers, um, as well as kind of more broader commitments to an opposition to all forms of oppression, that was uh, the, the means through which they were able to draw an increasing large number of workers into um, the movement. And there's a kind of you know feedback loop where once, for example, your you know your syndicalist union is so dominant then what that means is that people join the union just because it's necessary to get a job or because a strike's currently going on. And then once they're in the union, they can absorb anarchist ideas uh, and then become more active in the movement. And, and, and it kind of, you get these kind of feedback cycles. Um, now, another important factor is the context in, in which all this is happening. Um, so during this period, capitalism and, the modern nation state—they're still establishing themselves as dominant structures, uh, and the working classes were yet to be fully integrated into them. Uh, so, you know that the police is a relatively recent thing uh, in this period. Um, the state bureaucracy is nowhere near as like well-organized uh, as it is now. Uh, they don't yet have anything quite akin to, say, the CIA or, or the FBI in terms of like their modern ability to engage in surveillance Um, and so this this process of integration was achieved by various means from the late 19th century to the present. So there's uh, national state education systems which indoctrinate workers into the ideology of of the state in question There's the toleration of large top down trade unions that balance the interests of labor and capital, um, the spread of nationalism. Uh, Workers coming to think of themselves as white is like a crucial factor in how workers in Europe and America become like integrated into the structures of the ruling classes Uh, and also a long term trend is socialist parties. They engage in electoral politics and gradually over time they abandon their revolutionary commitments and ultimately become defenders of capitalism with welfare programs and labor laws. um, And that's one of the means by which, you know, social movements that initially oppositional to capitalism, the state become integrated into it. And one of the ways in which they kind of now market themselves as essentially more effective managers of capitalism um, than, say, neoliberal parties. Uh, and so these different processes kind of result in the present day. We have loads of workers who identify with their interests with those of the state. They lack class consciousness. And they also think that there's no alternative to capitalism and the state. Because it just feels like, well, this is how society's always been, and this wasn't the case in the late 19th century. Um, so, the historian Danny Evans has proposed that anarchism should be viewed as a social movement that emerged as an attempt by workers to impose this integration of workers into capitalism and the state. And this is because anarchism was opposed to, you know, the chief methods of integration. Uh, So they were against uh, mandatory state education and wanted to create their own uh, alternative worker run uh, systems of education. Uh, They thought that workers should remain outside of and against the state rather than attempt to build towards socialism through forming parties that stood for elections. And they thought that workers should build their own forms of self-organisation and collective power that maintained their independence from the state and their strength as a class, in particular uh, militant trade unions. And so anarchism was especially popular in places where integration hadn't been firmly established, such as Spain and Italy, and was less popular in places where integration had been, had already occurred to a much greater extent and was more successful, such as in uh, England. And so in these places, workers were aware that the state was their enemy, uh, and they didn't kind of, or at least they didn't identify with the state and say and think of themselves as a like a citizen. Um, And so a key factor in why anarchism was initially popular and appealed to lots of workers was due to the manner in which it was a movement created by workers for workers. And was the crystallization of forms of working class consciousness that had been developed for several decades in response to the Industrial Revolution uh, and the rise of capitalism um, and the modern nation state. And this can be seen in just how rapidly anarchism grows in some places. So in Spain, the anarchist-led section of the First International. It is. It begins as a series of small meetings in 1868 and 1869, um, and by 1870 there's a national federation. It has 150 sections with a total membership of 40,000 workers, which is, you know, much bigger than your typical uh, anarchist organization in the modern world. Uh, And so how enough did they achieve such rapid growth in one to two years? Well, it's both because the anarchists were effective at organising, but also because workers were independently creating their own organisations of class struggle. And they were then attracted to the ideas of anarchists who spoke, uh, you know, to their own, to to the experiences that they already had uh, of class struggle. Um, And so then once anarchism is a mass movement in the country, it's able to pro, oppose the process of working class integration into the state uh, and capitalism and thereby ensure that working class consciousness and militancy is maintained over time, which in turn ensures that there's this space uh, for, you know, anarchism to continue to like grow and, and reproduce itself. Um, and I think one of the big challenges for anarchism today is that. Well, the historical workers' movement was either violently destroyed, or it was incorporated into class society, and kind of was neutralised uh, as a as a force of major power. Um, and you know, workers have, say, massively uh, been integrated into capitalism state And so, anarchism doesn't have this same immediate appeal than it that it once did to people who. Um, It it was still like a new set of social relations that didn't seem like the only way that society could possibly be organized. Um, And I also think it's kind of significant that a lot of um, recent mass mobilizations that have happened uh, among populations today are often among groups that have been excluded from the state in various ways uh, and so haven't been as fully integrated into it, uh, such as um, black people in America protesting against. uh, violence in the united states and you know this isn't my point this is a point that's been made by um black anarchist authors that i've read um, so yeah i hope <laughs> that gives some sense of like it's both to do with what anarchists would were, were, were doing that made them so successful but also the context that they were acting in that created certain kind of possibilities um, that aren't necessarily the case anymore
1: well i wanted to turn now. we talked a little bit about this in the last interview, but there was often this, I don't even want to call it a split per se, but there was you know definitely kind of two poles. There was one that, within anarchism around organization, there was one that favored more informal, affinity-based group organization, and there was another that pushed for more uh, formalized structures like labor unions and federations and stuff like that. And you kind of break down sort of how this as you call it, the insurrectionary anarchist current, although this is in the context of, you know, centuries ago, not sort of kind of the uh, post-70s current that evolved out of like Italy with Bonanno and stuff like that. But you discuss how this kind of comes out of several, um, you know, material realities, largely state repression. And you discuss how propaganda of the deed resulted, you know, out of this. So let's let's stop and let's talk about this. You know, how did that
2: evolve? Yeah, so quick point about terminology. Like in, in the book I use a like anachronistic term, which is like insurrectionist anarchism. That's not a term that they used. Uh, and the reason why I use that term is because every single kind of movement in different countries have their own language and there's no consistent terminology so in some places, they call themselves anti-organizationists. Uh, in other places, they call themselves individualist anarchists, but they don't mean that in the sense that it means in America with people like Benjamin Tucker in favor of free markets. Um, they don't... Um, in, in other places, they just call themselves anarchist communists, but then that gets really confusing because, you know, it ends up being the case that the majority of anarchist communists are in favor of, uh, you know, tra- trade unions, which the, the people like insurrections were generally, like, against as a effective way to, like, work towards revolution and, and the way people identify was often based on their favorite newspaper, um, rather than just say, b- because of the fact that, you know, there comes a point where they're all anarchist communists, so they can't, that doesn't differentiate them anymore. It has to be through, well, like, what's your favorite newspaper. And that's kind of really difficult to keep track of when you're trying to write a broad, uh, clear overview. And so I use this, this language that was, um, kind of coined by, uh, Lucien van der Vol. Um but it's important not to kind of read in what we call insurrection anarchism today into that uh, historic stuff. It just happens to be this, the same word and i I tried to come up with a different word because of this but i, I wasn't able to and kind of gave up um, but that that kind of terminology uh, question aside uh, I'll first discuss how propaganda of the deed kind of changes over time, and then I'll go into uh how state repression was one of the key things um, that led to this. So this is a terrifyingly complex topic uh, because it happens in so many different countries across such a huge period and there's so many different events. So it's really hard to like make generalizations because of how much variety there is. Uh, so I'll make a few like broad points, but keep in mind that this isn't the full story. Uh, it's It's way more complicated. So propaganda of the deed, Starts out as the position that anarchist ideas could and should be spread through actions rather than only through uh, written or spoken propaganda, and in this time period, propaganda doesn't mean what we think of as propaganda, like where you're, say, like deliberately indoctrinating people, like in 1984 or something, or like a totalitarian state's propaganda system. Uh, it just means things that are, you know, written or said in order to persuade people of your point of view. Uh, it has a much broader meaning. and doesn't have the kind of negative connotations that, that, it, that it now has. Um, so during the 1870s and 1880s, the phrase propaganda of the deed largely, but not exclusively, uh, refers to the practice of anarchists collectively attempting to launch armed insurrections in order to spread their ideas and inspire a popular uprising. Um, it was also sometimes used to refer to forms of collective direct action like combative demonstrations where you fight the police um, and saying that these were like an effective way of popularizing anarchist ideas and gaining support for the anarchist movement. And one of the main reasons why anarchists thought that insurrections um, would be an effective means of spreading anarchist ideas uh, was because the Paris Commune had recently happened uh, in 1871 And news of it had drawn loads of people into the socialist movement, um, which, you know, as I said previously, like included um, Kropotkin, uh, but also uh, Malatesta um, and and a number of the kind of most prominent anarchists in Italy. They they become uh, anarchists because of the Paris Commune. And so this led to the idea that, well, we just need to keep doing Paris communes or mini Paris communes. And that process will continue and it will make socialism become this like mass movement. So they're currently like, a, you know, a relatively small social movement. And they think that, well, we're going to engage in insurrections. That's going to spread our ideas. People who can't read, which is uh, the majority of the population at the time, uh, can learn about our ideas because um, you know th- this huge uh, series of uprisings keeps happening. Uh, And that draws them into the movement. And they're then changed by the kinds of activity they're engaging in. And so you get this kind of like virtuous uh, feedback loop towards uh, a revolution. Um, So to give an example of how they kind of talked about it in 1876, uh, Carlo Coffera and Malatesta, that they they write a letter explaining the ideas of the Italian uh, Federation. And they say that the Italian Federation holds that the act of insurrection designed to assert socialist principles through deeds is the most effective method of propaganda and the only one that, without deceiving and corrupting the masses, can delve into the deeper strata of society and draw the cream of humanity into the struggle backed by the international. Um, and they uh, attempted to put this theory into practice on various occasions. Uh, their attempts at insurrection were consistently uh, unsuccessful, uh, and this later leads people like Malatesta to reevaluate the strategy uh, and, and kind of reject the policy of like immediate uh, armed struggle, while well, there's still a kind of relatively small uh, social movement. Uh, so I'll give, you know, one of the most famous examples, which I think shows how it can kind of simultaneously fail while also having certain kinds of successful outcomes at the same time. Uh, and that's the Benevento uh, Affair of 1877. So the idea was, is that a group of Italian anarchists they're going to roam uh, the Matisse mountain range and its surrounding provinces in southern Italy. And they're going to spread revolutionary consciousness to uh, peasants because uh, the international Italy was overwhelmingly a movement uh, of, of kind of urban workers uh, and artisans and not peasants. And they were and, and this was a time where peasants were a huge amount of the population as they're trying to kind of get mass support for their ideas. And this is one of their proposals about how to do it. Uh, and so um, James Guillaume, who was a Swiss anarchist, he writes a kind of history of anarchism during this period. And he he kind of explains their ideas because often kind of academics will talk about this phase of Italian anarchism as essentially they're kind of like it's mindless. They haven't really thought it out. This is like really ridiculous. And they kind of like have a really patronizing attitude towards them. So I think it's important to kind of emphasize that, like, well, they did have ideas, even if it like ended up not working out. Uh, so Guillaume uh, says as follows. He says, our friends in Italy came to the conclusion that in their country, at least, oral and written propaganda were not enough. And that to be clearly understood by the popular masses, especially the peasants, it was necessary to show them what could not um, what could be made living and what could not be made living and real in any theoretical teaching. They had to be taught socialism through deeds so they could see, feel and touch it. A plan was formed for teaching the Italian peasants by means of a practical lesson what society would be like if it got rid of government and property owners. For this, it would be enough to organize an armed band large enough to control the countryside for a brief time and go from one commune to another, carrying into effect socialism through action before the very eyes of the people. And so that's why it's called propaganda of the deed, because it's like we're engaging propaganda through our actions rather than just rewriting and speeches. Uh, so, you know, as I said earlier, it, it didn't work out. And the reason why, well, there's several, but one of the main reasons why is that the Italian state is aware of the plot because they have police spies in the movement. Uh, and one of the key organizers actually uh, disappears uh, shortly before it's about to go ahead, having revealed everything uh, to the Italian state. And so they're in this nightmare situation of like, what do we do? And they decide we're going to go ahead anyway, but we're going to do it earlier than we initially planned. Uh, this doesn't result in an escaping uh, repression. So several of them are arrested before they can even reach the agreed one day um, Those who do arrive successfully are forced to flee the area uh, with a fraction of their equipment and supplies. Um, after realizing that there's uh, policemen who have them on the surveillance and there's like a shootout and they run away. Um, and during their escape, they meet up with uh, other anarchists who which I, I think this is very funny. Uh, they had eluded uh, uh, the police um, because they missed their scheduled train uh, and, and got a later train, <laughs> which means that the, the police, who like, had everything very well planned out, uh, ended up not being in the right place to arrest them. Now, this group of 26 uh, anarchists couldn't realistically uh, achieve much because they're, they're low on men, they're low on ammunition, uh, weapons and food. Uh, the surrounding large towns had been apparently occupied by twelve thousand tr- troops, which was obviously kind of overkill, but I think shows how generally afraid like the ruling classes were of, of um, peasant uprisings uh, happening because there had recently been a series of kind of mass mobilizations uh, in, in the country in the kind of few years previously um, and so given these kind of <laughs> less than ideal circumstances, the anarchists were only able to enter small, uh, two small towns. Uh, and in each case, they would burn the official documents uh, taken from the town hall. Uh, so you know the documents to do with like taxes and the state. Uh, they would distribute you know weapons and money to the local peasants. They would give a rousing speech on the social revolution, uh, and then they would kind of like move on. Um, and the peasants didn't join the anarchist insurrection because of. They were aware that if they did, the government's going to turn up very quickly and repress them. They don't have a chance of surviving. They don't know if these strangers are undercover cops or not, and so they, you know, they, they don't join uh, the anarchists. To cut a long story short, the anarchists end up being uh, arrested, and uh, the, there's then a court case, which uh, during which they are, you know, um, let, let off. Um, so they 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 don't, um, you know, have to spend like several years in, in prison because of this. Um, and during this trial, they give loads of speeches about anarchism and that results in a massive increase in the popularity of, of anarchism in Italy. And it's probably uh, the reason why the Italian section of the international massively grows uh, over the following year and a half. Although, you know, obviously, like we have a we have a correlation, but it doesn't mean there's causation. But like, I think it's a strong indicator of like a causal connection. Um, so was a, in many ways very farcical but also did seem to like uh, have a certain kind of propaganda effect, uh, but not for the peasants that they met in these towns, but for kind of the broader population who read about it and listened to their court speeches, uh, or read accounts of their court speeches in the press. So that's a kind of snapshot view of what propaganda of initially means. Now, it's meaning kind of gradually changes during the 1880s, and it goes from collective acts of insurrection Uh, kind of inspired by the Paris Commune, into individual acts of violence, uh, especially uh, assassinations uh, and bombings. Uh, And these were viewed as a form of kind of working class vengeance against the violence of the ruling classes, which would weaken uh, the the ruling classes, spread anarchist ideas and also uh, inspire the working classes to rebel. Um, Although different anarchist assassins or supporters of it did have different views on which elements of it they stressed, you know, for some people, it was mainly about revenge and they didn't think that it would, um, you know, have this kind of, it would, they didn't think it would be a catalyst for like societal social change. Uh, that's a word phrase. They didn't think it would be a catalyst for um, large scale social change. Uh, they instead viewed it as well. We achieve revenge. I, You know, there's a court speech, reportings of the court speech. Mean that a huge number of people hear about anarchism and it would like inspire workers and show them that say, you know, a king can be killed. They're also a human being, just like anyone else. Uh, while others have a kind of like less well thought out view in which they do think it will kind of be this, uh, catalyst for ultimately a revolution. And so when evaluating it, it's important not to kind of like straw man the more nuanced versions of it with the kind of more like ridiculous, uh, less well thought out versions. Uh, And so the scale of kind of uh, individual acts of violence carried out um, by anarchists uh, is, I'll go again. Um, So in terms of like the scale of how many attacks were carried out, um, what the main kind of overview by a historian called Richard Back Jensen finds that during the 1890s, uh, real or alleged anarchist assassinations and bombings in Europe, the United States and Australia, killed at least 60 people uh, and wounded more than 200. And between 1878 and 1914, real or alleged anarchist assassinations and bombings globally, apart from Russia, uh, killed more than 220 people and wounded over 750. Um, And I'm going to kind of zoom in on one of the most famous examples. Uh, So there's a French anarchist called Ravichol. And in 1892, he decided to seek revenge for the uh, arrest, torture and imprisonment of uh, anarchist protesters by the French state. And so he decides he's going to um, bomb the apartment buildings where the judge and the prosecutor attorney of the court case live. Uh, Ravichol um, became a kind of like anarchist martyr um, because he was subsequently you know, captured and, and executed. But it should also be stressed that he really wasn't actually very good at assassination. Like he, he was not a, a, a professional. Um, so he, he didn't know what apartment the judge lived in. And so he just lights the fuse and leaves the bomb on the second floor. The judge, in fact, fact lives on the fifth floor and so wasn't in any danger. Um, and when he tried when Ravishol tries to bomb the prosecutor, he kind of places the bomb, you know, in the like apartment complex and lights the fuse. But the, the prosecutor wasn't even at home. So he didn't even check to make sure the person he's trying to kill is like at the place. Uh, and these two explosions, which which were meant to be like targeted assassinations. Well, they wounded like eight innocent people who just happened to be uh, in the area. And that was because of like Ravishow's like incompetence as an assassin. Uh, he also had like absolutely no OPSEC. And, and this is why he is arrested. Uh, so immediately after trying to use explosives uh, to kill a um, prosecutor, he goes to a restaurant and starts talking with the waiter about like anarchism at length. Uh, and this waiter, he then notices that Ravishol has like a scar on on his left hand. So like Ravishol didn't like even try to cover up the kind of like noticeable things about his appearance. And three days later, Ravishol, he goes back to the same restaurant. And this time, the waiter informs the police because there are you know descriptions of Ravishol in the paper. The waiter realizes the same person and, and like calls the cops, and then Ravishol like gets uh, arrested. Um, now, Ravishol is a kind of slightly more like ridiculous case, and other uh, anarchists were much more effective as as, a, as assassins. Uh, and the, the, the successful assassination attempts uh, overwhelmingly uh, used pistols uh, and daggers rather than. Uh, explosives, um, which also meant that they would be, you know, caught immediately uh, after the uh, assassination or assassination attempt. Because you know, with a bomb, you can leave it and go somewhere else. But with a pistol and a dagger, you you're very much like there, and so you can't exactly easily run away. Um, so between 1894 and 1901, anarchists kill the president of France, the prime minister of Spain, uh, the empress of Austria, the king of Italy, and the president of. Uh, America. Um, these um, assassinations bombings, that they're, they're, they're pretty overwhelmingly, uh, but not always, carried out in response to the violence of the ruling classes, including both state repression, but also uh, imperialist wars and, and colonialism. But they also result in state repression. So then you get this feedback loop where there's state violence, there's an anarchist response to it with an assassination or a bombing then there's more state repression, then there's more assassinations and bombings and so on. And so there's this kind of like uh, feedback loop. Um, So to give like one example, returning to France, uh, three laws are passed uh, between 1893 and 1894 uh, against anarchism. Uh, So the first makes it a crime to kind of apologize for a criminal act. Uh, The second defines a criminal group uh, by its intention to commit crimes such that anarchist groups uh, can now be arrested, even if they hadn't actually uh, engaged in any actions that broke the law. Uh, Just by existing, they are uh, a criminal group and so can be arrested. Uh, And the third law banned any act of uh, anarchist propaganda by any means uh, whatsoever. And so this repression results in your numerous arrests, anarchists having to flee the country. And most of the anarchist papers in France cease publication uh, you know, Kropotkin says that it kind of this repression has the effect of like thinning the ranks of the anarchist movement, um, because you know the people who are less hardcore go well, like <laughs> this isn't fun. I don't want to be anarchist, and they kind of you know stop being involved. Mm-hmm. Too kind to be out
0: fighting in a war. Turn the other cheek and pretend to ignore The difference she could make to the cause When she left her life behind She knew what she did it for And Anna was lies they like to tell Too caring and compassionate To let those thugs raise hell She saw the revolution For what it was When they held her back She dyed her hair and said I don't think so boss And Anna was her name? And on that day as the Turkish planes rolled in We lost an angel in a friend Where a body still lies, despite everyone's cries, she is cold and alone. So bring Anna home. she can pretend to ignore the difference she could make to the cause she left her life behind she knew what she did it for and Anna was her
1: it's, it's interesting because in many ways, a lot of these uh, actions were carried out because of massive state violence, like you were saying, or the anarchist movement itself being repressed by the state. Like a lot of people kind of were pushed into this more informal uh, militant stance because of uh, repression of trade unions, of anarchist papers, of the movement itself. But then these actions in themselves just, you know... It, uh, create more and more repression. Like I, at one point in the book, you talk about like people, you know, wanted the ruling class to be afraid. And, and in many ways they were, and they answered back by just, you know, smashing, uh, these movements in a lot of ways. And it's hard not to look back at this stuff and, and be really critical of it. It seems like, and in and, and a lot of ways too, it's interesting. Like, you know, you, talk at length about sort of the history of this stuff and it's fascinating to me that even in these small groups there were still a lot of police informants even make the argument that some of these may have been carried out by police uh infiltrators or people pushed to like do some of these acts although obviously not most of them um and obviously there's just there's also some actions I think that can't even be, you know, kind of, uh, sympathized with in the sense of just like, you know, innocent people being hurt. Um, yeah. So I don't know if you have any other thoughts kind of just on, yeah, yeah, I,
2: I, I can kind of, so with, you know, that they're conceived as these acts of of propaganda, they're going to spread anarchist ideas, but what they kind of seem to result in is like a moral panic against anarchism. um, in which people start to, you know, associate anarchism with like mindless destruction um, rather than this kind of like, you know, popular social movement that's going to make society better. Uh, and in America, and the US, this was especially entangled with xenophobia um, because most of the movement in these uh, countries are immigrants. Uh, and so they combine the kind of moral panic against anarchist bombers uh, with uh, you know, xenophobia uh, against immigrants. Um, especially uh, Italians, um, and you know, I think it's also important to emphasise that the claim that kind of propaganda of the deed like wasn't effective um, as propaganda. That this isn't just something that like modern historians, uh, you know, say. It's also what loads of anarchists who are critical of these tactics point out at the time. Uh, so there's a French anarchist uh, and kind of trade union organizer called um, Pelutier. And he says in 1895 that I know many workers who are disenchanted with parliamentary socialism, but who hesitate to support libertarian socialism because in their view, uh, anarchism simply implies the individualistic uh, use of the bomb. Um, And I also think it it, it needs to kind of um, be emphasized kind of in detail, like how state repression led like to, to these assassinations and, and bombings happening. So I'll kind of talk through like, how this happens um, in Italy. Um, so from kind of 1878 onwards, the amount of state repression that Italian anarchists are facing like, massively uh, expands. Um, and this is because there's a, a, a Republican, not an anarchist, uh, tries to kill the king of Italy. And they even used that as an opportunity just to like destroy all the social movements in the country, especially you know, the anarchist ones. Um, and you know, previous attempts at repression against anarchism in Italy like hadn't been super effective because they would be arrested, then they go on trial, and the jury acquits them because they are like really charismatic and seem to be nice, and the jury kind of like doesn't really realize like what exactly their political views are, uh, and they're not kind of treated as criminals; they're treated as like uh, you know. They, they have principles. Uh, they're like that. It's theirs. as were like political prisoners. Um, and in response to this, the Italian state just strips anarchists of what um, little legal protection they had. So in 1880, uh, the High Court rules that um, any internationalist organization composed of five or more people is a criminal association. Uh, and so now anarchists are treated as common criminals rather than political prisoners. And this means also that the Italian state can now arrest and imprison anarchists just for being anarchists, even if they hadn't done anything or planned anything. And so, loads of anarchists are subject to searches of their home, newspapers are banned, groups are dissolved. Uh, they're you know put under, as it were, like house arrest, uh, or, or um, this is one of the key things that happen: is they get uh, deported to and forcibly confined on essentially prison islands uh, near Sicily and southern Italy. Fast forward to the 1890s. Uh, there's a anarchist uh, carpenter called Liga who uh, tries to kill the prime minister of Italy. He shoots him. Uh, the bullet misses. Liga's is then arrested and kind of dies in prison. And as far as I recall, what are like very suspicious circumstances uh, that, you know, they tried to as far as I remember, they tried to make it seem like a suicide. But it really gives strong like he was killed in prison by cops. But I haven't read about that in a while um, now. The reason why Liga does this is that he carries out the act in um, retaliation for violent repression of working class social movements uh, in Italy and Sicily, where there have been recently kind of like mass uprisings that are like violently crushed. Um, And then the the assassination uh, attempt gives the prime minister the perfect opportunity to kind of go for the killing blow. So he. um, Passes these exceptional laws against anarchism. Um, which massively expand the reasons for why you can send people to um, these penal islands and this would happen without a trial in front of a jury it was kind of like a, an administrative thing um and, and you know the judge obviously was very much against anarchists so that there was kind of it result in loads of people being sent uh, to these prison islands without like a, a proper trial um and this was all to you know prevent the previous problem where anarchists would like get acquitted uh, all associations and meetings that aim to, you know, subvert the social order, which means like, you know, do anything that ruling classes don't like, uh, was now illegal. Uh, you know, news, any newspaper that uh, apologised for criminal acts or incited people to disobey the law, like incited class hatred was made illegal. And so this means that, you know, basically like any anarchist newspaper uh, it, it is, is now banned. Uh, and what's amusing is that at this time, like there were very few anarchist newspapers left in the country because of all the repression. And so it's kind of just such overkill. It's like there isn't really much left to repress, but they're still like, we're going to repress everything. Um, now, the, the prime minister, he falls from power um, for kind of very convoluted reasons involving the uh, the Italian army. They suffer like a massive defeat in Ethiopia when they're trying to do colonialism. And even when like, the new government comes into power to replace like Crispy, um, they, they have like a general amnesty towards prisoners on these Pinot Islands but not if you're considered dangerous, which, of course, means that like well, most of the anarchist prisoners are just left uh, in, in these islands. And, and the repression just continues and continues. So uh, there's these wave of uh, protests in 1897 and 1898, uh, where there's a wave of um, you know, demonstration strikes, riots uh, in response to the, the spiraling cost of bread, which was you know the main uh, source of food for workers. And one of the key reasons why bread prices had, uh, had risen was uh, that the Italian state didn't want to lower import duties on foreign grain. Why? Uh, Well, because they wanted to protect the financial interests of Italian capitalists and landowners, which also crucially included the prime minister and the finance minister, who both owned uh, lots of land. And so in response to the struggle for food, uh, the Italian state uh, engages in mass arrests. They mobilise the army. They impose martial law. Uh, protesters armed with little more than sticks and stones are shot at um, by by soldiers. Um, Warships threaten to shell uh, working-class neighbourhoods. There are cavalry charges of of protesters. Uh, So, you know, soldiers with sabres on horses charging into, like, you know, um, women trying to, like, block the street. Uh, They also fire um, cannons, so, like, full artillery uh, at protesters who, at best, maybe, like, have some revolvers, and during this kind of struggle, uh, 264 people are listed as dead victims uh, in local newspapers. Uh, but there are estimates that range from like 400 to 800 deaths. You know, which is which, for context, is more uh, than you know the number of people that anarchist uh, attacks are alleged, uh, well, a- a- actual and alleged anarchist attacks, uh, you know. Uh, killed during this period. So like, you know, just one moment of state violence is so much greater than even the kind of excesses of like anarchist violence. Uh, And the King of Italy responds by rewarding Italy's highest, uh, you know, decoration to the commander of the soldiers that ordered cannons to be fired at protesters. And this is why uh, Italian anarchists called Bresci uh, kills the King of Italy uh, in 1900 as an act of revenge. Uh, Fun story. While Bruschi is waiting for the king to show up so he can uh, kill him, uh, he, he visits the same like ice cream shop like five times or something. So he's just kind of sitting there like eating ice cream. Oh, he hasn't turned up, goes back to the ice cream shop, has more ice cream and like repeat. So by the time he, he like kills the king, uh, he's, he's like his stomach is just full of ice cream, um, which I guess, you know, makes sense. Like He knows he's going to his life's not going to be good from now on. So we might as well like enjoy ice cream uh, while you can. One, one of the other points I want to
1: make is that sort of the world that a lot of this evolved out of is one in which there's multiple political um, movements that are engaging in these like you know extreme measures, I guess you would say. I mean, you brought up in the book, you know, there's the Russian nihilists, there's Irish Fenians, there's Spanish uh republicans that are all engaging in acts of assassination and, and targeted violence against you know the rich and the the elites and politicians and stuff like that and it's interesting you know i, I at one point i read like a, a dissertation by a student in which they said they went back and they were reading like various press articles and basically the argument that they made was that a lot of times uh and you bring this up in your book, you know, people would engage in political violence and they would be just automatically referred to as anarchists because the term became so synonymous with, you know, political violence, even though they themselves were perhaps like, you know, you know, an Irish Fenian, you know, just like today, people will talk about the weather underground and just like describe them as anarchists, even though they were like, you know, authoritarian communists or Maoists or something like that.
2: Well, yeah, it's similar to how, like, Antifa is now used as, like, a scare word uh, by the right.
1: Yeah, so I don't know if you want to just, like, yeah, you know, I feel like we can talk about that and that could be, like, a whole other Yeah, yeah. I, I can
2: I can talk about that influence because it is really important to emphasize that, yeah, like, something I try to really emphasize in the book is that anarchists who, who you know, think that insurrection – um, while they're a small social movement, is an effective way to grow the movement, or who carry out assassinations and bombings, or like promote them. Uh, these ideas, you know, don't come out of nowhere. They weren't actually, in, the anarchists didn't come up with them by themselves in isolation. They're part of a kind of general trend at the time. Um, and so, you know, anarchists were affected by their social uh, social environment you know, as much as anyone. So in Italy, which I've you know, talked about a lot, but it's like <laughs> I know more about Italy than other places. Uh, so initially, the movement largely develops out of uh, revolutionary republicanism, and so you know this doesn't mean like American republicanism. It means you know we don't want a monarchy; we want a republic, which has you know the rule of law and you know elected representatives and so on. And you know years before anarchists are kind of launching their attempts at insurrection in the 1870s, you have people, uh, people like uh, Mazzini uh, and his associates who are trying to create a unified Italian Republic through this strategy of like bands of revolutionaries engaging in guerrilla warfare uh, and attempting to, you know, in Mazzini's words, rouse the nation into insurrection. Uh, these attempts at insurrection are largely uh, unsuccessful. Uh, they often fail because the state knows of the plots before they were launched, because even though they're organizing like in these kind of really convoluted secret societies, that, that there's still like you know, police spies. One of the main influences on Italian anarchism is this guy called Carlo uh, Pisacane, who they kind of discover in the mid 1870s, which is just around the time, you know, when they're developing this kind of interpretation of propaganda of the deed. Uh, And so Pisacane, he's a socialist. Uh, He's influenced by Proudhon, but he's not like a mutualist. Um, And he was chief of staff of um, Mazzini's uh, Republican Army of 1849. Uh, And in 1857, which is shortly before he dies in a kind of unsuccessful insurrection that he organizes with Mazzini, uh, he writes that, quote, ideas spring from deeds and not the other way around. Conspiracies, plots and attempted uh, uprisings are the succession of deeds whereby Italy proceeds towards her goal of unity. The flash of Milano's bayonet was a more effective propaganda than a thousand volumes penned by doctrinaires. So who is Milano? Well, Milano is a Republican uh, soldier who stabs uh, and wounds the um, king of Naples in 1856. Uh, and so one of the earliest, you know, assassins is a Republican. And this is before, you know, anarchism a social movement like even exists. Um, to give another example, in 1858, there's a Republican called Orsini. Uh, he, he and his accomplices, they try to assassinate uh Emperor Napoleon III of France with explosives, uh, and their bombs are, like, really powerful. That they, they kill uh, eight people, they wound at least 156 people, but the emperor's barely harmed because he has this, like, as far as I remember, he has, like, a special bomb-proof carriage, and so it just they, the bombs take up people who are, like, near but near the carriage, but not, like, the emperor, like, himself, so it's, like, unsuccessful, but it was a, a key source of inspiration for, like, for, 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 for kind of, later radicals. Uh, you mentioned the Finnians. So the Finnians were uh, like Irish Republicans, Irish nationalists, and they engage in this like dynamite campaign against the British government throughout the 1890s, which is before anarchists have like really gotten into the use of explosives, although they're like beginning to. Um, they also engage in assassinations. So the, the Finians, uh they killed the Chief Secretary of Ireland uh, in 1882. There's also you know the nihilists in Russia, So a group called People's Will. And they carry out like a wave of assassination attempts during the 1870s against government officials like chiefs, police and generals. Uh, And this culminates in them killing uh, Tsar Alexander II with explosives in 1881. And we know that anarchists were influenced by all these events because they tell us they were Uh, so um, Johann Most. He's a German anarchist who becomes like one of the main proponents of assassinations and bombings uh, throughout the 1880s. He later changes his mind. uh, And this leads to like Emma Goldman attacking him with a whip. Um, But during the 1880s, he's very much like in favour of them. Uh, And so, you know, he's not prior to becoming an anarchist. He reacts to the Tsar's assassination by printing, uh, you know, at last, exclamation mark, triumph, exclamation mark, triumph, exclamation mark. Uh, on the front page of his paper. And he suggests that, you know, we should kill a king a month. So no one will want to be king anymore. And for this, you know, he's imprisoned. <laughs> uh, and after he comes out of prison, he goes to America uh, and becomes an anarchist. And once he's an anarchist, you know, he responds to the the Fenian assassination uh, uh, of um, Lord Cavendish, the, um, the, the chief secretary of Ireland. Uh, by describing it as like a heroically bold act of popular justice and you know, most isn't the only one who's doing this. Like you can go loads of loads of our examples. So the there's a paper called the alarm in America and they react to a bomb attack carried out by Fenians in 1885 in London by saying that the explosions in London put more sense into the people than all the common schools have accomplished uh, in a quarter of a century. And so I think it's really important to like emphasize this context um, because Part of why anarchists, some anarchists usually become uh, such enthusiastic supporters of these tactics is because there's this sense that there's this growing wave of popular violence against the ruling classes carried out by loads of different social movements. And we're kind of one aspect of this wave and it's going to culminate in a revolution, which they think is coming soon. And so it's easy, you know, with hindsight to look back and go, why on earth did they think this was a good idea? And I, I kind of get that attitude, but I think you've got to kind of counteract it by really looking at the context to try and see things from their point of view, even if you still think that, you know, it, it wasn't a good idea and often, you know, did result in, um, you know, civilians being wounded or killed uh, without, you know, achieving widespread social change.
1: Okay. Well, let's kind of switch gears. I want to talk about how you know, the so-called mass anarchist movement uh, really organized. We've been talking about sort of other currents. Um, so I think the f- first thing to start off is, you know, how did these groups form and how did they interact with the working class, whether it was in Europe or the U.S.? Um, you know, I know that's a broad question, but how do we go from just kind of people developing these ideas to physically forming groups?
2: one of the main ways movements would go was through um, print media. Uh, And so what would happen is, uh, you you know, you distribute these papers. And those papers have an address which you can then, you know, write into. Uh, And so that then connect that kind of creates a network that people are now uh, a a part of, which can then form the basis for groups forming once, you know, people who are all like readers of this paper um, kind of get to know each other. And they can also, crucially, uh, people would read the papers aloud. And so this by itself would, would create a group of people who might go from only, you know, listening to the paper being read aloud to, you know, deciding to like unionize uh, their workplace. Uh, and, and this was, so what would happen is, you know, ideas uh, channel out through uh, the paper and then people in their local these localities, we'll write uh, write back to the editors of the paper with, you know, news of protests, of requests for money, uh, um, with, like, reports on, like, the the ruling class in the area. And so then the information would then, like, channel back to the editor and then out to, like, everyone. Um, So you have to kind of view anarchist papers as uh, the means through which, like, social networks were organized because, you know, they didn't have the internet it was done through, like, physical media. Um, and you know, the other chief thing is like organizing around people's like immediate uh, economic interests. Uh, so when, you know, anarchism has been a mass movement, it's primarily been achieved through trade unions, um, and people joining, uh, because, you know, they want to earn more or work less hours or have safer working conditions. Uh, and through participating in that collective struggle, they come into contact with like anarchist ideas and become an anarchist and then, you know, join the organization and help it grow. And so you get this, this, this feedback loop. Um, and so this happens like in, in America where, uh, you know, anarchists initially kind of aren't super involved in the struggle for the entire day. Um, because some of them kind of think that, well, this is like a distraction from revolution. But as, the, but as the kind of working class movement grows, they realize that, well, actually, like, this is something we should get involved in. And so there's a whole bunch of anarchists in America who become really active in the struggle for the entire day and view, uh, you know, the struggle for an immediate reform as a means to spread anarchist ideas and build the power of workers, uh, you know, ultimately, like towards a revolutionary transformation. So rather than kind of rejecting the struggle for immediate reforms, uh, and thinking that, oh, you know, this necessarily is reformist. Uh, they viewed the struggle for media reforms as, as the means to bring workers together on the basis of their shared class interests uh, and then create a social force capable of launching a successful armed insurrection. So the idea was, is that, say, you know, the anarchists in Italy in the 1870s, they were trying to generate a movement through insurrection. And then instead, the idea was... Well, actually, we need to generate the movement first, and then we have a social force that can launch an effective revolution. And, you know, this is what happens in Spain, where um, this mass you know, trade union movement is formed with things like the, the CNT. Uh, and that mass social force that has a kind of capacity for collective self-defense, uh, which means that when um, Franco launches a coup, uh, working class neighborhoods have organizations in place. Uh, which they can use to fight back, uh, against the coup and, and take up arms. And so that the, this kind of, this mass movement constructed for reforms also developed that social force that could then, you know, launch this counterattack and therefore also, you know, the Spanish Revolution.
1: Yeah. So how did, I mean, how did they grow so large? I mean, like, you know, you look at the CNT, like you said, like it had, you know, hundreds of thousands of members. Um, you know, there's obviously the IWW, which grew very large, although that wasn't explicitly anarchist, but definitely along those lines, you know, how did we get again from, you know, people putting out a publication and then having a return address on it to then, you know, tens of
2: thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So it can be, this can, this can be difficult to establish because, you know, you will read a history book and it would just be like... This trade union had a membership of like 10,000 people. And then a few years later, its membership was 60,000. And they like don't explain, like, how did they gain 50,000 members in a few years? I would like to know those cheat codes. Like, how did they do that? Um, and often, you know, that they like won't go into those kinds of details in part because it's, it's difficult to like establish. And the other thing to emphasize is that like membership figures don't tell like the entire story. So you, you can be really influential but have a rapidly fluctuating membership size as struggle ebbs and flows. And this was the case with the IWW. um, But to give another example, you have a lesser known union, uh, the central organization of Swedish workers, founded in 1910. And by 1935, they have 36,000 members. uh, And during this 25 year period, a total of 250,000 workers had at one time been registered members of the trade union. So, what can on paper look like a relatively small uh, anarchist led union actually mobilized way more people than you would guess just looking at the, the kind of raw me- membership uh, figures, rather than looking at the kind of bigger picture. Uh, so, as for kind of, well, the, the, the union that we have like the most information about, or at least I found the most information about in terms of how it grew, like is the CNT. Um, so, the CNT is you know, founded in 1910. And you know, when they founded it, they didn't know they were going <laughs> to create like the largest anarchist union in history. It was like it was developing out of a whole history of previous attempts to do kind of like anarchist trade union organizing. And this was just like the latest attempt. And it wasn't obvious that it would become like the most successful. So in 1915, the CNT has a membership of 30,000. By 1919, it has a membership of around 800,000, which is like ridiculous levels of growth. Uh, What caused it? Well, I'm still trying to figure this out, to be honest, but I can talk about what I think is definitely one big factor. So there's a historian of anarchism called uh, James Eumann, who wrote a book about print culture uh, in uh, the Spanish anarchist movement. And one of the things that he emphasises is that, well, in 1916, the CNT's paper, uh, Solidaridad Obrera, it becomes the Spanish anarchist movement's first stable daily newspaper, and this led to far more people coming into contact of anarchist ideas and the CNT uh, than before. So like the typical anarchist paper between 1890 and 1915 has a print run of 20 to 30 issues. And between 1916 and 1919, Soledad Obrera releases around 800 issues. Uh, and this, uh, the success of this paper also leads to the consolidation of anarchist print media and fewer papers exist because people are like, well, we're not going to launch our own paper to compete with Soledad Obrero. We're just going to you know, submit our articles to it. Uh, and also some papers closed down and told you know, their readers to go buy Soledad Obrera instead. And so what this means is that anarchism becomes increasingly identified with the CNT uh, and you know, its paper. And so there's this kind of feedback loop where the strength of anarchist organizations coincide with the strength of, of, of anarchist print media, and they mutually reinforce each other because Union Jews financially support the paper and the paper leads to more people joining the Union, which leads to more Union Jews. Uh, and so, you know, Soledad, most anarchist papers were written by workers in like their spare time after a full day of work. Solidaridad Obrera um, had full time um, paid writers, which was very controversial at the time. Um, but again, like indicates that, that it was kind of different to previous, um, kind of anarchist publications. And I think its ability to kind of like pump out content on a daily basis had like a key role in the ability of, of like, uh, anarchists, the, the union to like organize and grow. And, and they would also like support class struggle. So, you know, when a strike is happening, well, you can read about it in the anarchist paper and obviously you're going to get a very pro anarchist point of view. And then that can like persuade you to get involved. Um, you know, another factor is what I've talked about a few times now, which is organizing around immediate concerns and the interests of workers. So I'll give kind of one really famous example, which is in 1931, the CNT launched a rent strike in Barcelona in response to the spiraling cost of living. Uh you know, that there had been like previous smaller rent strikes, and so this is the kind of like culmination of, of a of a kind of movement that's occurring. And one of the chief groups that are organising it are unemployed construction workers. Um, and so it's an interesting example of how a kind of trade union, which is meant to be organising, you know, workers at the point of production in industry uh, it, it is, is shifting to um, community organising. And one of the things that causes that is that, well, the workers don't have um, jobs that they're unemployed and they're like, well, we need to, like, improve our situation. Um, And so this rent strike, it it rapidly grows after being launched, and it goes from uh, 45,000 workers in July to over 100,000 in in August. Um, And the ruling classes respond like you would expect with repression. So they they ban public meetings of the Economic Defense Commission, which was like the the group that was mainly behind the strike. Uh, They evict workers, um, obviously, you know, with the police. Uh, And then the tenants organize these counter protests where they try to prevent evictions. They reoccupies houses after the eviction had taken place, and they also move evicted workers into the homes uh, of CNT members. And they also um, they they do marches on the homes of landlords, uh, you know, warning them like don't re-evict tenants or there'll be trouble. Uh, the rent strikes eventually defeated uh, later the, in the year because the state just starts arresting any worker who resists eviction or returns to the home uh, after eviction. So despite the fact that it was crushed, you know, by state violence it still was a success in the sense that it drew so many workers into the anarchist uh, movement uh, and thereby laid the foundation for future mobilizations. And this is especially in the sense that, you know, when you're at a protest, obviously they start talking to each other and start talking about politics and anarchism comes up or, you know, you've been evicted from your home and so you're told, well, you can go live with these people. And it happens to be a home in which everyone is a CNT member and then you're persuaded, you know, to also join the union. So it's important to look at the kind of micro, micro level social relations and, um, through which people are kind of persuaded, uh, to, to you know, j- join the movement and how important a role that played as opposed to just thinking about, you know, there was a big strike and this is its like effect looking at this kind of top down view. I think you also have to emphasize a kind of like thinking of it from a first person point of view where it's like, you know, you don't want to pay rent. You join this rent strike. You meet these friendly anarchists, uh, at the protest, you've been living with them, that, like, has an effect um, as, as your, um, you know, worldview changes.
1: We often reduce kind of, like, mass anarchist activity to simple, simply labor unions or, you know, on the other side is affinity groups or print publications. And, you know, we talked to Mark Bray about this, but let's... Talk about community centers, schools, and other institutions, you know, anarchists help set up and create. Let's talk about this infrastructure. How did that play into the movement
2: as well? So, that was, yeah, really, really important. It was, I think, it really kind of helped lay one of the solid foundations on which the strength of the union was built. Um, so, one of the main physical places uh, where workers would come into contact with anarchist ideas were cultural and uh, social centers called uh, tenures or. Athen- Athenians um, and they were they typically had a cafe, a library, a reading room um, and the reading room would have, you know, like books of all different uh, persuasions. Like it wouldn't just be anarchist literature. They'd also have, you know, like science books and philosophy books and other kinds of politics because, um, you know, they thought it was important that workers gain a kind of like broad education rather than just you know you only read anarchists it's like what well, you can learn you know a lot by reading you know, other people or about you know topics other than politics uh, they also had meeting rooms for um you know, anarchist and neighborhood groups and they would have an auditorium for uh, formal debates for public talks for like you know uh, artistic performances like they, they did a lot of amateur uh, theater and they would then decorate these buildings with signifies of anarchism so you'd have, you know, a portrait of a famous revolutionary, uh, red and black banner, uh, and and part of why these uh, social centres were so important is that well, the CNT is made illegal a huge amount, like, like it's, it's, it, it will be consistently repressed with brief periods where it's legal and then it gets repressed again, or you know it's not illegal but it's still you know subject to uh, state violence. And what this means is that well one of the things that continues to function when the union has to go underground in order to survive is these social centres, and so they're generally able to remain open and ensure this ongoing contact uh, and uh, between anarchists and other workers and like and kind of an anarchist presence in working class communities, which again was connected with you know print media. So I remember reading about one woman who. She, you know, reads an anarchist paper, thinks it's rad. She goes, she goes to the editors of the paper, and it's like, I want to, you know, get into anarchism. What should I do? And they're like, go to this ateneo. She goes to the ateneo, where she meets like a, a guy who then, you know, shows her the library, and she like starts reading and, and, and becomes an anarchist. And she goes on to be like one of the key uh, organizers of like later um, anarchist women's groups. Um, but it begins with, you know, from print media to uh, joining the social center, to becoming an organizer. Um, The the workers who participate in the attendees, they they did all kinds of things. So they would do um, day schools for working class children, uh, evening classes for adult workers and children workers because child labor still a thing. So you'd have kids who would like, you know, work all day and then go to the anarchist school in the evening, as well as kids who like, you know, weren't in work and so would go to the day school. Uh, they had you know theater clubs they would do radical plays they had singing and musical groups they had picnics so many picnics like when you read anarchist history it's like they're always organizing picnics um there's uh, hiking clubs which was you know really important for them because it means you know people growing up in this kind of urban environment where there's pollution and so on where well, they, they can go into the natural world and experience the beauty of the countryside and the coast and this was thought to have like an excellent like effect on on, on workers in terms of like their health Um, and through participating in these kind of social centers, workers, they're also forming bonds with one another. You know, you're making friends and thereby becoming a member of the anarchist movement and also forming the social networks that are going to go on to play a role um, in the movement. And so there's loads of anarchist militants, especially women, where they first encounter anarchist ideas uh, and join anarchist social networks through their participation in these cultural centers, especially when they were children and teenagers. Um, because you know, of the educational component uh, and the other thing to emphasize is that you know these attendees that they, they weren't just places of leisure and recreation and discussion they were also avenues for class struggle so you know people would mobilize to participate in demonstrations and strikes uh, that the that kind of anarchist youth movement uh, in Spain um, became like it, they, they created their own federation of like anarchist youth, but that began as a series of like networks in the in 10 years that, you know, over time links up. And this youth federation, um, it's independent of the CNT, but it comes to be viewed as like one of the main pillars of the anarchist movement. It's like the, the CNT, the FAI, which is like a specific anarchist organization uh, and and the youth federation. Um and so, you know, as I've said, like one of the main things they would do was like education. And, you know, I've read accounts where work will be like, you know, I couldn't read or write. And then I attended the school by the anarchists and they taught me how to read and write and I owe everything to them. They had, like a profound effect on my life. Um, and this was part of a kind of wider emphasis on education in the anarchist movement. Um, initially, uh, anarchist teachers worked at secular schools, independent of the church, which were run by Republicans. Uh, but over time, they start to establish their own schools. And you know, the most famous one is what I'm sure Mark Bray would have talked about, uh, which is the modern school established by Francisco Ferrer in Barcelona. Um, but I think it's important to emphasize that like the majority of anarchist schools in Spain weren't as well funded as Ferrer's modern school. So outside of Catalonia, they were often rooms uh, which lacked equipment and trained teachers. Uh, these rooms were often used for multiple purposes. So I read about one school in Cadiz, which was in uh, the meeting room of the city, city's Metal Workers society, which I think again emphasizes how like rooted it was in like working class social movements that the school is, you know, in the same room where like unionized workers also meet to like hang out.
1: What do you think are some of the big things that we can
2: learn from the past? So that's obviously a huge topic. Um, I think there are kind of, I know three things I would like to emphasize. So the first is that trade unions. Um, especially effective ones were never purely workplace organisations, um, and so it's a mistake to kind of juxtapose, you know, workplace organising with community organising, as if you have to pick, because the best unions always did both, um, and these components supported one another. So you know, we've talked about how the Ateneos, which were in the community, supported um, the, you know, the, the CNT and so like trade union organising. Um, but even like the district committees of this, of the CNT, which is one of the key like organizational components of the union, they were located in union centers within working class neighborhoods. And so they, um, were rooted in social spaces, which established bonds of support between workers from different workplaces who might otherwise, you know, not bump into each other, um, migrants who were new to the area and were trying to meet people and also unemployed workers, uh, who are obvious reasons, you know, unions don't always, um, focus on because well they're they're out of work Uh, and so what this meant is that anarchist ideas were being spread um, through workers in varied circumstances on the basis of their shared belong to a local community and that community node was then part of this you know trade union um, network so you can't it's not one or the other it's always both workplace and community uh, and the ability of the CNT to like mobilise so many groups of workers during waves of strikes uh, and direct action wasn't just based on their like you know we've effectively unionised this workplace or this this industry. It's also because of the you know face to face influence of, of anarchist militants in uh, conversations with their neighbours, with friends, with family, you know, on the street, in their homes, uh, cafes, you know, in in the community. And I think one of the big issues that anarchists have today is that, well, you know, the rent is too damn high. Uh, social movements often have less like physical spaces than they did uh, like historically, and you know, obviously there's there's like lo- a lot of squats, but that's kind of more unstable because of the nature of squatting. Um, and and so I feel like that's kind of one of the issues with like, well, why don't we just create loads of community spaces? And it's like, well, it's it's there. It's harder to. Um, you know do, do this now uh, like i read about one group of anarchists who they just kind of create their own little co-op uh, that, that that which is built by like um, unionized construction workers who are in the cnt uh and this also is like a social center and you know they were like a, able to like uh, fund all the materials and just do it themselves well now i feel like you know we've construction there's way more restrictions like you know planning permission it's so expensive the land is so expensive like e- even if you want to kind of build your own building from scratch it's like way harder now than it was for these like anarchist workers in, in the past um who you know created their own space rather than like renting a place. um the other thing I, I would want to emphasize is that like when you read history books it will be like Here's another massive strike, and here's another massive strike, and then there was a huge rent strike, and then there was a revolution. And it can there's this kind of big disparity between like you know our daily lives as radicals and these huge events. Um, and it can feel like you know people in the past were kind of doing huge radical stuff all the time, and we no longer are. Um, but if you actually read a lot about the lives of these people you know, most of their time isn't spent organizing or participating in a huge strike. Most of their time is they're attending like an endless series of meetings for their union. They're having to write so many letters. Uh, They're attending, you know, a theater group or going to a picnic. And and these kind of apparently like trivial, unimportant acts actually were the foundation for a lot of the bigger uh, mobilizations because they create the social networks and and reproduce those social networks, which you need for that large scale mobilizations and organizing uh, to like often occur. Um, and so that's something to kind of think about when you're feeling like, well, what have I really done? Cause I'm not doing these huge things. It's like, well, the, you know, the dead people also spend most of their time doing like seemingly trivial things like, you know, well, like I'm just reading a book or I'm just um, attending a meeting. It's like that, that those small moments are the building blocks for the big moments. Obviously, you can't just do that. You also have to you know, act and take action. Uh, but I, I think it's important not to underestimate the value of the, the little moments that we often are actually doing on, on, on a day-to-day basis. I realize that people in the past you know, were the same as us. They, they spent most of their time doing those little moments as well. Uh, and the third thing I want, want to emphasize is that historical anarchist theory uh, is overwhelmingly uh, written in clear prose In short articles and pamphlets. Um, So there's been a tendency for some modern radicals to copy like the worst kind of pretentious, unclear writing styles that are popular in parts of academia. You know, especially say English literature. Um, And the result is theory that isn't. Like it's not effective at conveying ideas to large groups of people. And so it isn't effective at building mass social movements. Now, I'm not saying that, oh, you know, workers are so uneducated, they can't possibly understand theories. I like, know workers can understand theory. Uh, I just think that you should communicate that theory clearly so people can you know, quickly uh, read it and understand it and get something out of it. Um, the harder a text is to read, the fewer people are going to finish it or they're going to not want to put in the work necessary to understand it. And this is especially important when you think about, you know, how many people are tired and overworked, how many people have depression. It's like one of the leading causes of disability worldwide. Uh, loads of people have dyslexia, you know, myself included. So they find reading really difficult. And so I think it's really important to kind of spread radical theory through in short, bite-sized chunks. Uh, and, you know, do so clearly just as, you know, historical anarchists did. But obviously, you know, we have to write in a style that feels modern. In the same way that you know, like anarchists in the 19th century, their style, you know, it, it it has lots of elements to it that kind of sounded cool at the time, but now sound kind of weird. Uh, and you have to obviously write for the moment and can't just like copy how the, the dead anarchists wrote. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not saying like I'm the only person who's thought of this. Obviously, like there's a reason why z- um, zines and podcasts, you know, are so popular among radicals today. I just want to kind of emphasize that it shouldn't be. Um, underestimated how important it is in terms of building mass movements to like think about the means through which you're disseminating information and trying to kind of spread uh, radical ideas you know that the ideas are important but so is the mode of transmission
1: Awesome. Well, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. We'll have to come back again soon and continue to have these discussions.
2: Where can people
1: buy the book and where can people follow your work and support you?
2: So, yeah, Means and Ends, uh, Revolutionary Practice uh, of Anarchism in Europe and the United States. It's the name of the book. You can buy it from AK Press directly. Um, Or, you know, an online bookstore uh, of your choosing. Obviously, you know, it varies from country to country. In America, it's quite straightforward to order from AK Press directly. But in Europe, it's harder. There is AK Press in the UK. Uh, They have their own website. So if you live in the UK, you can order from them directly. Uh, The book isn't officially out yet in the UK, but uh, it's coming out soonish. Uh, an audiobook is also going to, uh, be released, you know, with like professional voice actor rather than like, you know, me. Um, and so people who, you know, struggle with reading, you can buy, you know, buy the audiobook when it comes out later this year and le- learn about Anarchist history through that. Uh, I also, you know, make YouTube videos, uh, and post on Twitter and Instagram. So look for, um, sorry, Baker or Anarko Zeri or Anarko Pack. I need to, I need to make it all one name. At <laughs> the moment I have too many names. Um, and, you know, if you, if you like my work and want to help me continue to kind of write, uh, you know, anarchist history full time, I also have a Patreon and, you know, I I couldn't have like finished this book if it wasn't for people supporting me on Patreon, meaning, you know, I could kind of just continue to like, uh, work, work on it full time. And that, yeah, I'm really grateful for, um, so yeah, I I hope people like enjoyed listening and, and, and learned something about the history of anarchism. And I hope they also, you know, enjoy enjoy the book if they choose to read it. Oh so, yeah, thanks, thanks for inviting me on. I'd, I'd love to come back another time.
1: This has been the It's Going Down Podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org shop to support us, and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.